So, okay, tonight we, the, this talk will be structured or divided in just three parts. Okay, so first thing that I'm going to talk about is why philosophy is something that is just natural to us. Okay, why it is that we are here tonight. Why is it that there is this interest in philosophy? And it is something that we feel from the inside pushing us to ask and something to question. So that's the first thing that we will just look at, touch on briefly. The second thing we talk about is how that, that same reality is played out in history. Okay, so we're going to look at, at how that sort of desire, that impulse to, to, to question, to seek, how that um, desire actually in the, in the Greek world in a very special way that it took on a very special relevance and a very important importance and there was an important development of, of philosophy in the, um, in the Greeks, the Greek world. And then finally, we will take a look at our own times. We see how, but how did that, that dynamic, that search, which comes about, which we feel naturally, which also expresses itself in a historical way, how does that also play out right now? Right now, here and now, in our world, in your world, in your reality, in the University of the West Indies, in the Caribbean, in Trinidad and Tobago, you know, right here, right now. So let's, take, let's start with the first point, that philosophy is something that is natural to us. It's not only something for experts or for something that that people who have just studied a lot, okay? In some way, we can say even a child is a philosopher. You know, one of the things that is interesting about children, even from, even when they are, even just in their cradles, that their parents, they have these little guard things that they put above them, they call, they call them mobiles, and they play with it. You see, they know that I touch it here and they want to see the effect. You know, if I do this, what happens? There's that natural curiosity. And so, in a way, it is that cause-effect. And that is something, that's a philosophical concept. That there's an effect, and then, but it is by, a, by some, some also cause. And they're able to relate those two things together. Some of the things that you see a child do, for example, is to pretend that they are something else. That's an amazing thing. We, I guess sometimes we don't, we don't appreciate the, how incredible that is. You know, that a child, for example, will play, pretend to be a dog or a cat. Have you ever seen a dog pretending to be a horse? You know, or have you ever seen a bird pretending to be a cow? <laughs> okay, I mean, if you see a, a cow like, climbing up on a tree and attempting to jump off and fly, you know, you would be, you think that you're probably dreaming. Okay, most likely. So, what's the point? The point is that that we have our intelligence and because of our intelligence we are able to just grasp what we can call the nature of things. Things have a nature which is like a way of being. Okay? And you just grasp that naturally. So a child, you know, maybe he'll be here and he'll come and say, <laughs> and he'll go up to Mark or whatever it is, you know, and Mark will say, what, you, what, what do you want? And, and the child will say, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to pat me and or throw a bone, or throw something, and I will go fetch it, or something like that. Okay, now, 
That is an incredible thing. That a child is able to understand how a dog is and pretend to be its own self a dog. And even do things that a dog would do in circumstances that he never would have actually experienced his own self. It means that he has understood what a dog is. He has grasped that in the nature, we can say, the essence of it. Okay? And so that is, in a way, philosophy, that we know what a thing is, what is its essence. We just grasp, we just know. Okay? No one has to tell us. We know in a different circumstance, this is what we will do. So those are just two small examples, okay? You're welcome, that show us introduce us to see how philosophy, okay, and here we are looking at things that have to do with natural philosophy in terms of cause, effect, understand the nature of things that we understand, that we grasp. We can talk about the purpose of things, that things have a purpose. Mommy, why, why, why? There's a time when children always can, why, why? And parents, it drives them crazy. Okay, and that is just natural, it is natural to us to ask that, that question. Now, this is natural. To, you know, we, the, the things, the examples that we, that we mentioned have to do with the exercise of the intellect. Now, there is a deeper reality which is on an emotional level. Okay? Emotionally, we are also driven to philosophize in a very real and very powerful way. Okay? If it was just purely intellectual, well, probably many people won't really do much. But it actually is much deeper. Because we, okay, let's look at the contrary. That's a probably sometimes interesting way to begin. Like, if you are in a circumstance where there is chaos, for example, there's no order. So, okay, the class is supposed to start at 10, but 11, no one is there. You know, then, you know, the transportation, there's supposed to be the bus, but there's none. You know, that you know, if, if everything changes, if there is no order in anything around you, you feel, I mean, you'll be very upset. You, you feel very uncomfortable. You can't function, right? It's, it's impossible that, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but that's one of the, you know, the criticisms that people have of your university. Many of the university, many of you attend, is that, it seems that, you know, <laughs> it just is somehow it's just not, it's not organized and, and people are, are very frustrated, it seems. You hear one thing and there's another thing. So you pay this here and it's the guy said, no, it's here. It's this other guy. And, you, and it, you know, it drives you crazy. You know, you want to kill somebody. You want to strangle somebody, right? You want to strangle the university. And you feel that way. You, you, you're angry. You get you're upset because it's not nothing is working. You don't know what to do. So you say, let me scream or do something. Something has to change here. So why is it that you you feel that way? Why do you feel that way? Well, because we have, you know, it is a natural inclination. This is what St. Thomas Aquinas would tell us, okay? To that that help that makes us feel we are naturally opposed or those kind of things that is disorder is a repulsive thing to us and but you look at the other way and you say why am I feel that repulsion why do I feel upset or angry when things are not working when people 
are not doing what they ought to do or what they say. It is because there's a natural inclination to what is something which is just the opposite. Is that in us, we have a, a co-naturality, we can say, with what is order, is what is organized. Okay, and Father Bueno can tell us about that because he studied Vagelin, and Vagelin speaks about history as a history of, about order. Okay? okay, but we're not looking at historical perspective as yet. We're looking at our own selves, trying to get in touch with our own selves. This, is, this isn't just something that is experience of every human person. Okay, there's nobody who thrives in, in say, oh, chaos, yes, I love it. <laughs> okay? Now, no. Now, that inclination to order, St. Thomas Aquinas, he would say, it's an inclination to live in society, an inclination, inclination to communicate. Okay? And how does that, you know, that inclination express, express itself? But ultimately, order is like justice. So there's, you want justice. So when we, you know, that, that comfortable feeling, you have a sense that we all have to communicate and, you know, it's not just order for me alone. We all have to work together. We have to communicate. So it is already a value. It becomes something we grasp as a value. It's something that transcends me because it has to be order for me, has to be order for you, has to be order for all of us. And there is an emotional reality here which is even a very, which is very deeper that psychology has helped us to understand which is a desire for what we call significance. In other words, we don't desire order only to look at it and to say, oh, this is, this is beautiful, I like how this system functions. But if we go deeper, deeper, and you say, why is it that I, I dislike, dis dislike when things don't work? This, I dislike you know, when, when things are, are disorganized, when people don't put things back, and I can't find it, and it's not where it should be. And well, ultimately, it is because we want to find and know our place in the universe. You know, that ultimately the order is a search, not just because I can function, but we want, yeah, it's something deeper, which is to know what is my role, what is my place in the universe. Okay? There's a wonderful book which is called uh, Self-Esteem Without Selfishness, written by Michel Esparza. And in that book, he speaks about maturity or, the, or kind of a human flourishing in what he calls a humble self-esteem. A humble self-esteem. A humble self-esteem means you understand your role and you embrace it, and so that's humility. You're not jealous of other persons. You don't want others to just put you up all the time. You, aren't, you know your role, you embrace it. So it's a humble, but a self-esteem in a sense that you know this is my place. And so you're comfortable in your own skin, saying, if I'm doing my part, I know, well, I'm happy. Everything is fine. Everything will work out. Somehow God will provide. God will make things work out. I cannot force other people to do their part, but I'm doing mine, and so I'm happy. I'm good in my own skin. So now you find that if the, if the, you, when that is missing in a person, when a person doesn't know their place in life, they do not know their role in life, then they're, all, they're not sure where to go, where to turn. And they try to impress others. They try to... Self-esteem is in all sometimes silly things, in how you look and how you dress, having money. You just try to impress others. And 
and people have a low self-esteem of, of themselves, and that creates that's a big, big problem. It's a very, very big problem. So there is then we can see then how you know that drive. There's a drive in us emotionally to be at peace with our own selves. There's a drive to have a sense of significance, to be good in your own skin. And, and that is knowing your place in the world. And that means understanding, well, it's something that is a very philosophical reality here. Because we have to understand what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of my life? So those deeper questions are very necessary before you can say, well, this is my place and this is what I'm about. So to feel happy, we need philosophy. And we are driven to, to make those deeper questions and to, and to try to answer them. So part two, what we're going to look at now is how that, that what we experience, we can say on a personal level. Okay? We spoke about the child grasping these philosophical concepts. We spoke about our emotions, grasping fundamental values. Okay, we only spoke about one value, there are many. Okay, we spoke about the value of order and my place in the world and the meaning, the emotion of self-esteem, humility. Okay, well, historically also, this dynamic or this, this, or this reality of order also plays itself out. Okay, and we mentioned how the philosopher Vagelin speaks about that. Because historically, there are times in which there's chaos, and there are times in which there's order. Okay? And so, particularly around the time of, of uh, let's say, in the Greeks, you had a group of persons sort of emerging, let's say, who began to just be very fed up, disgusted with chaos. Okay? Now, maybe we can step, make a step back. Trying to seeing that there is chaos around, okay? Seeing that, that there's, it's just, the things are in flux, especially as you get older, you know, that you see that, that things that you, know, that you understood as values, that, that world, the beautiful world that you had as a child, you see that many persons, you see, somehow are opposed to that, okay? Well, historically, some philosophers seeing chaos, they decided, well, that's all there really is. You know, the thing of order, and we spoke about self-esteem, the thing about my place in the universe, that's an illusion. All there is is, is, is flux, all there is is chaos. Okay, so the, the, the sort of philosopher who represents that is called Heraclitus. Now, Heraclitus was a philosopher around 500 BC, and that's what he says. There's a famous phrase where he says, you can never step into the same river twice because the water is moving along. And so, you know, therefore, and he says here, and I have the quote that he says, one should know, is another thing that he says, that war is common to all and that strife is justice and all things both come to pass and perish through strife. That's life. Strife. All there is is strife. Things come to pass, and then they perish. That's all there is. There's no good, right, wrong, evil, nothing. So that's Heraclitus. So, so you can imagine that, you know, that, that how, you know, um, we're like, like that. I mean, for, for, for a person who, who's wants to understand their place in the, in the universe, 
cannot connect with that. And that is, in a way, what happened. So, okay, let's go more to the specific circumstance, which was just around the time of, of Plato and, and Socrates, that this, we can say, disorder, this flux, okay, was showing itself in a, in a, in, in a very special way in the political arena, okay? And Plato, he felt an, an aversion for certain philosophers that they would call themselves the sophists. So this is where we come to the reading for, for the class today. I'm not sure if you were able to have a look at it. But the reading was from Socrates' Protagoras. Now Protagoras is a self, was a self-proclaimed sophist. Maybe, okay, he wasn't as bad as maybe some other sophist. But that sophistry that Plato felt an aversion to, it essentially what it was is had to do with manipulating. So the whole idea of sophistry was, okay, the famous phrase of Protagoras is, man is the measure of all things. You know? So in other words, that it is according to you and, and your argument, how you see things and your perception, right? that is what the reality really is. Okay? And so, of course, if you can manipulate other people's perceptions through arguments and through eloquence, okay, playing on their emotions and playing on their sensibilities, you can win them over to your side and you can get them to give you money. They'll vote for you. They have prestige. You can manipulate. Okay? Isn't that sound familiar? Right? When you think about politics. Okay? Right? It's called demagoguery. But, it can, but that's... It's a, yeah, it's demagoguery. So... That is, in, in the political sense, is called demagoguery today. So Plato saw that that was what was happening. And in a very special way, there were the sophists. There were some personalities who were very eloquent and very able to, you know, to sort of influence others. And so in the reading, we saw um, a young man asking Plato to introduce him to Protagoras so that he could learn that eloquence. And he wanted to give him money, pay him, even borrowed money from a friend you know, so you see how the sophist is working, <laughs> he's getting money to have this eloquence. And then, so uh, when they go to, okay, so Socrates says, okay, they go to his home, Socrates uh, introduces him to his friend, and then um, Socrates tells him, says, okay, this fellow's eloquent, but, you know, what is the eloquence leading you to? You know, what is this eloquence, what is it producing? Okay? Because you can have somebody being eloquent to do something maybe destructive or something that may be building up. So Socrates raises that point first of it, first of all. So here we can see then how Socrates develops a style, which is which is called the dialectic. So by questioning, by questioning, he tries to help people to also be in touch with what we can say are more transcendent values. Move sort of step out of just their what is their emotions and their feelings and and sort of being drawn by, you know, Protagoras' arguments, which have to do with analogies and myths and uses. But they're very, very attractive arguments. And Socrates, by questioning, helps us to step out and to reach out to what is transcendent. Okay, that, what is, what is, we can say, beyond my own reality and what concerns human nature as a whole. And then they listen to Protagoras, and there's that, at the end of the dialogue, you know, it's interesting, after Socrates lets... Let's Protagoras speak for a while. He says, So charming left his voice that while 
thought him still speaking, still that while that I, what the while thought him still speaking, stood stood fixed to hear. So in other words, it's like he was left like, oh, wow, how charming in his voice. And even when he stopped speaking, as though he was still wanted to hear more. So this is the sophist, <laughs> okay, charming. So so what is what are we getting at here? What are we what we're pointing to here is a specific and a very precise moment in history where a group of very smart, very honest, very humble people, like Plato, Socrates, and then Aristotle, rejecting sophistry because they perceive the flux and the destructiveness of chaos. That, I guess, following that inner drive that we all have that God has given us to want something that is solid, what we can say looking for constants because the constants is what can give order to things okay you must have a constant ultimately to, that can then order things okay and one of these constants will be things like values the essences these unchanging things that you can you can then stand on and build on and so these were men that had a passion and a search for the constants in life and the constants in history and so Plato began unfolding these, these, these realities. And so the constants in life are what we call the essences of things, what things really are. Okay, so he had a search for that. And then in terms of the human being, they looked to the understanding what are the fundamental values in a very special way, the virtues. Plato's conception of virtue, it was sort of very, sort of absolute perfection. He saw or anything that brings about that change, something that contaminates. So he wanted some, that sort of something unchanging, so pure, that he played down the body a bit. Aristotle was able to correct that with the whole idea, the notions of substance and accidents, okay, which are things that we, we, we learn about in, in philosophy. But nevertheless, he, he came back to that whole idea of the virtue leading us to have a happy life. Okay? So that is um, what Aristotle says. And he brings it together in a, in a marvelous way here when he says, he says that we state the function of man to be a certain kind of life and this to be an activity or actions of the soul implying a rational principle. Okay, so there we got the, the constant. And the function of a good man to be the good and noble performance of these. And if any action is well performed, when it is performed in accordance with the appropriate excellence. If this is the case, human good turns out to be the activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. And if there are more than one virtue in accordance with the best and most complete, 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 and most complete. So he gives us that very clear idea of, of an understanding about, okay, that, that what human fulfillment is, is about, and it is based on, on this virtue. Now, Philosophy then had an incredible growth in, the, in this Greek world with these small group of philosophers rebelling. Okay, and there was some of them, I mean, Socrates, he was actually con con accused of being a rabble rouser and was put to death eventually. But anyway, the point is that unfortunately, history also continues. Okay, and so 
we always have this, you know, this order being challenged by chaos. It's always this battle, order and chaos, you know. And so you always find that this pride, remember we went back to that humble self-esteem. So you have these surface people coming up and these constants are always being challenged. So we find, our, find ourselves in our, our modern world where, okay, that you know, we, we, have to, we want to sort of seriously ask ourselves again, to say, well, okay, you know, these, what, are these, what are these constants that we are naturally attracted to? What are these constants that we, you know, that we, that we are drawn towards? And one of the things that, that we can say, I think, is that if there are constants, okay, these stabilities, these, 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 these if, if Plato and Aristotle really put us on a solid ground, then to do philosophy, it is of capital importance, it seems to me, that we need to have or refer to what we can say is an enduring tradition if we are to do proper philosophy. You know, so if this business of, the, of this constance is so important, then the danger of philosophy is to fall into that same kind of a flux and that chaos as history goes on. That is the real risk and the real danger of philosophy. So when we are looking at introduction to philosophy, I, th I think that it's very important for us to have a sense of freeing ourselves from chaos. Because that is where a lot of times you find that philosophy has found itself. And how do we navigate in, in philosophy? When we want to enter into philosophy, I feel we need to look at what we can say is this enduring tradition. But at the same time, the proper exercise of reason and freedom needs to open new avenues. And so that is sort of a very core reality and challenge of philosophy has been and always will be and even also today. Now, we are here you know, speaking about this, but then some of you may say, but oh gosh, Aristotle, Plato, you know, Thomas Aquinas, that's old time, isn't that, that's old time thing, that's, that's we really, we need to, it doesn't really address our modern world, we need to change this, we need to have a different philosophy, okay, now, there is a, a philosopher called Descartes who actually began that enterprise, who embarked on that enterprise. And so what he did, he said we needed something radically new. And Descartes, he was, he wrote in, um, Father Bueno might know, might help us here. Father Bueno, when was the Descartes write? That was in the 16th century, more or less. 17th century. So 17th century, Descartes. And Descartes, I actually found a quote here from him, and I'll read it for you. Basically, what he did, he says, we have to doubt everything. Philosophy is a new start. Okay? So, for me, that's like chaos. <laughs> right? You're saying, we need to changing everything. Okay? But anyway, some people may say that's what we need. What happened? Let's take a look at what happened. So, he has to doubt everything. And yes, he says, he wrote in one of his works, he says, I thought that a procedure... The following procedure was called for, that I ought to reject as absolutely false all opinions into regard to which I could suppose the least ground for doubt, in order to ascertain whether after 
that there remained aught in my belief that, that was, there remained anything in my belief that was wholly undoubtable. Accordingly, seeing that our senses sometimes deceive us, I was willing to suppose that there existed nothing really such as they presented to us. So, so he didn't even, he said, whatever comes to us in our senses, I can doubt that. Right? <laughs> so, what you're seeing and saw the world is, is not really real. We could be in a matrix, basically. Uh, and then he goes on to say, and because some men earn reasoning and fall into paralogisms, even on the simplest matters of geometry, I convinced that I was as open to errors as any others, rejected as false all the reasonings that hitherto taken for demonstrations. So we can make errors. So he rejected everything. Sciences, mathematics, geometry. <laughs> just, just doubt everything. <laughs> People. And then he says, I convinced that I was... And then he goes on and he says... And when I convinced that the very same thoughts which we experience when we awake may also be experienced when we are asleep. And there is, at that time, not one of them true. So I suppose that all the objects, the presentations that had ever entered into my mind when awake had in them no more truth than the illusions of my dreams. <laughs> right? So we see when you're awake, we could be dreaming, all of us right now. Who knows, right? So we have to doubt, right? Doubt all of that. But immediately upon this, I observed that whilst I thus wished to think that all was false, it was absolutely necessary that I, who thus thought, should be somewhat. And as I observed that this, that, that this truth, I think, therefore I am. So while I'm doubting, the only thing I know is that I'm thinking. And therefore, he says, I think, therefore I am. And that was and Descartes. So Descartes then, you know, this, this method of radically doubting everything sought to put philosophy on a new ground, looking for some new constant, which is, I think, and therefore I am. So, what is this, what, what, what happened there? Well, what happened there is that this led to what we call modernism, where philosophy becoming, becomes now, I think, therefore I am, is that reality is now the product of the activity of the mind. So we don't, we've lost the basic intu intuitions of Aristotle, Plato, where we grasp, you know, the kids grasp the nature, the cause of things, purpose in things, my meaning in life. So all of these things then become something at the end of the day that you just come up in your mind. You see, your mind produces these things, these meanings. Your mind and this activity comes up with new ideas and, 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 it, and it imposes it on the world. So this has a huge challenge for us. Thinking that he's coming up with a constant, what he has actually done, he has actually thrown philosophy into flux. Because we see that in science now, is this a business of hypothesis testing when there is no criteria to guide our hypotheses? So we have no sense of objects and their natures and their purposes. And our life and living is also all of a sense of what I feel, what I think like, what I, what I, what I choose. It's just a sort of a exercise of, of your own freedom. But there is no longer any transcendence that we saw in Plato and, and, and also in Aristotle. So thinking, trying to find some constant, he's through philosophy into flux. 
And where all of this led eventually is a kind of a voluntarism where, we, where you end up just actually rejecting any constant. That is where it has led. And so the modernism has taken us to Nietzsche, and I will read here for you. Because all of this has a historical also importance because technology has enabled man to actually in, in, to actually impose on nature in ways that he didn't have, did, was unable to before, and even on his own self. And also money, having more money, you can actually now, you know, live a very dissolute life and, and not suffer the consequences from it, you know, taking medication and so on. But anyway, let me just read this to you from Nietzsche very quickly. And he says, and he says, and do you know what the world is to me? Shall I show it to you in my mirror? This world, a monster of energy, without beginning, without end. A firm iron magnitude of force that does not grow bigger or smaller, that does not expend itself, but only transforms itself as a whole, of unalterable size, a household without expenses or losses, but likewise without increase or income, enclosed by nothingness as by a boundary, not something blurry or wasted, not something endlessly extended, but set in a definite space as a definite force and not a space that might be empty here or there, but rather as a force throughout, as a play of forces and waves of forces, and at the same time one and many, increasing here and at the same time decreasing there, a sea of forces flowing, rushing together, eternally changing, eternally flooding back with tremendous years of recurrence, with an ebb and a flood of its forms out of the simplest form, striving towards the most complex, out of the stillest, most rigid, coldest form, striving towards the hottest, most turbulent, most self-contradictory. That is actually a philosopher that's writing this. <laughs> and then again, returning home to the simple, out of this abundance, out of the play of contradictions, back to the joy of concord, still affirming itself in this uniformity of its courses and its years, blessing itself as that which must return eternally, and a becoming, and as, as a becoming that knows no satiety, no disgust, no weariness, this, my Dionysian world of the eternally self-creating, the eternally self-destroying, this mystery world of the twofold voluptuous delight, my beyond good and evil, no good and evil, without goal, unless the joy of the circle is itself a goal, without will, unless the ring feels good will towards itself, do you want a name for this world, a solution for all its riddles, a light for you too? You best conceal strongest, most intrepid, most midnightly man. <laughs> this world is the will to power and nothing besides. And you yourself are also this will to power and nothing besides. So it just becomes this. We have throwing off the sense and the understanding of an enduring philosophical tr tr tradition rooted on a humble self-esteem. We have been thrown into a world that is built on a kind of a illusionary kind of a kind of a constructions of pride. A proud man wanting with will to power imposing his own ideas on others but in a way that can change from one day to the next. The world is my caprice. Well, how can we conclude then? I think it's, it's very important for us to conclude saying that philosophy 
if we, we, we're looking at an introduction to philosophy, I think it's important for us to have a, have a sort of a, a certain affinity to what we can call an enduring tradition. And to, to go back to these, these constants that have always been there. And this, in fact, is what the church has recommended to us. Okay? And Ephesians at Ratio says this very, very clearly. And I'll just read to you two points very quickly before we end. So John Paul II, he writes, he says, I believe that those philosophers, philosophers who wish to respond today to the demands which the word of God makes on human thinking should develop their thought on the basis of these postulates and in organic continuity with the great tradition which, beginning with the ancients, passes through the fathers of the church and the masters of scholasticism and includes the fundamental achievements of modern and contemporary thought. If philosophers can take their place within this tradition and draw their inspiration from it, they will certainly not fail to respect philosophy's demand for autonomy. And he goes on and he says, In the present situation, therefore, it is most significant that some philosophers are promoting a recovery of the determining role of this tradition for a right approach to knowledge. The Peter tradition is not a mere remembrance of the past. It involves rather the recognition of a cultural heritage which belongs to all of humanity. Indeed, it may be said that it is we who belong to the tradition and that it is not ours to dispose of at will. Precisely by being rooted in the tradition, will we be able today to develop for the future an original, new, and constructive mode of thinking? This same appeal is all the more valid for theology, not only because theology has the living tradition of the church as its original source, but also because, in virtue of this, it must be able to recover both the profound theological tradition of earlier times and the enduring tradition of that philosophy, which by dint of its authentic wisdom can transcend the boundaries of space and time. And then he concludes, this insistence on the need for a close relationship of continuity between contemporary philosophy and the philosophy developed in the Christian tradition is intended to avert the danger which lies hidden in some currents of thoughts which are especially prevalent today and which we spoke about. So this is something that um, is very, very, I mean, it's very, very clear in the magisterium of the church. Okay? And, and it is something that you know, when we are embarking on this business of, of, of philosophy, that is something that is important for us certainly to take to heart. Uh, and knowing that we are responding, it's not just an uh, interesting choice we are making. We are responding to a real genuine inner impulse that these men were able, I think, to harness and give expression to through a very a simple and profound and a humble self, self-esteem together with brilliance. And well, so this is what I have for today. Thank you very much.